Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. For many parents of special needs kids, education continues to be the main cause of concern and worry. Are our kids being given the right accommodations in school? Are the schools being held accountable for special education services? And who is supposed to be checking in to see if they are? Further, with a push in this country to seriously consider doing away with public schools and instead privatizing the schools into for-profit corporations, where does this leave special education? And what rights will parents of special needs kids have if this happens? One of the strongest supporters of education rights for all children throughout the United States is the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. And joining us on this episode of Special Parents Confidential is Kristen Totten, who is an education attorney with ACLU Michigan. She's also one of the speakers that I met at the special education rally that was held in Lansing, Michigan, back in October of 2016. And she served on Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly's task force on special education in Michigan. We talked about the current state of special education in Michigan and across the United States, how some states allow charter schools to reject special education students even though they are required to accept them, the need to end the use of restraints and seclusion on special education students, and what parents can do to get involved and make sure that the special education needs of their children are being met. But first, I asked her to talk about some of the specific bigger issues that the ACLU of Michigan is working on for special education rights. Children with educational needs that don't get their needs addressed struggle within school systems. And so the ACLU of Michigan is really trying to advance an agenda in regards to ensuring a quality education for all children because we have the philosophy that all children can learn irregardless of what their disability is. And we as the adults need to sort out what it is that they need in order to enable them to learn, whether it's special education, 504 accommodation plan, um, positive behavioral interventions, a lack of restraint and seclusion in regards to children so that they feel safe and secure at school. There are several different things that we are advancing. We've um, recently filed back in October, on October 18th, uh, a class action lawsuit on behalf of the children within Flint. As you know, that they have had to undergo for 18 months having lead in their water supply. They were told by their government that it was safe to drink. In fact, when there was a Legionnaire's outbreak, it said boil the water and then drink it, which increased the lead toxicity to children. So we're very concerned that there's a lot of needs within Flint um, that are going unaddressed given the uh, effect that that lead can have upon the developing mind um, in regards to lower IQ, adverse behaviors such as ADHD, ODD can often be often be identified as uh, disability-related conditions related to that, and also the trauma that the families and children have experienced. Um, Post-traumatic stress disorder um, is common in regards to such an outbreak as this, and I I am very concerned that the children are being uh, disciplined in the typical mode of discipline, which is when they have challenging behaviors, they're pushed out of school rather than accommodated and getting their needs addressed. So, We are making sure that children remain in school, uh, get the accommodations that they're rightfully entitled to in addition to the Flint water crisis case. Um, And it's really not the lead in the water. That is a backdrop of the issue. It's really making sure that children within Flint have the fundamental right to education and get their needs addressed there. We also have filed uh, a lawsuit that just was recently heard by the Supreme Court of the United States 
oh, the Fry case is what it's known as. Um, Elena Fry was a young girl, is a young girl with cerebral palsy who needs assistance uh, with many of her daily tasks, and she had a uh, an assistant dog, service dog Wonder, uh, that was assisting her. And Court of Appeals indicated that before she could be able to be able to utilize the access to her education, she would have to exhaust administrative remedies. So I can talk a little bit more about that as well. But we're just trying to make sure that children with disabilities have their rights advanced um, because they are entitled to a free, appropriate public education that enables them to achieve independent living, higher education, and also an opportunity at employment when they when they finish their schooling. Right. Right. Well, let's get into some details then about the Alina Fry case. Um, now, they, she had a service dog, and the school district that uh, she was in refused to allow her to bring the service dog even to to the school, even though the dog had been trained to work with her in the school. Can you explain more about that and give us some details about the specifics of that case? Sure. Happy to do that. Um, so in regards to this case, the service dog... Um, was requested. She was working with Elena. It was more for the purpose of her uh, independence. And the school district argued, you know, we have a parapro to assist her with that. And the family's position was, well, you know what, you're not going to have a parapro with her for the rest of her life, and we want her to be as independent as possible. This service dog enables her, enables her to achieve that. So it really is a fundamental right to an accommodation that allows for the independence. Um, and furthers her independence. And so there was great concern in regards to enabling her to be able to have that. And as you find with these cases, the first uh, line of defense that the districts always provide is, well, you have to exhaust administrative remedies before a court is able to hear the, the actual merits of the case, which would be whether or not she's entitled to this accommodation. And for those that are familiar, we have the due process mode of filing a complaint for special education, and we also have the Michigan Department of Education where you can write a complaint to them. Now, writing the complaint is a much more cost-effective way to advance a complaint. Um, it's cost, um, cost, costly effective, I should say, for families um, and, and not cost-prohibitive. Um, and that's where they can just go online, find the form, be able to articulate what the issues are within the school district that they're struggling with. And what districts are trying to do to say, no, 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 you have to go through the due process, which is obtaining an attorney, we'll bring in our attorneys, and it will be fought out before an administrative law judge before you actually get the relief and before we actually get to the merits of the case. So this case really moves that argument forward in regards to this isn't an IDEA. It was not brought under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. It was brought under the American with Disabilities Act and the 504 Accommodation, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And in it, it's saying, you know, we need to get this accommodation to children, and they shouldn't have to go through that due process IDEA um, exhaustion of administrative remedies in order to get the relief that they rightfully deserve. So it will have a landmark systemic ramification if we're able to scale that hurdle, because anytime you bring these cases, that's the first line of defense that districts bring up. Right. Now, is, is that more of a, uh, and I don't know if you can answer this because it's probably a little bit of speculation here, but do you feel that that's more of a control issue for the districts or is it just trying to uh, uh, just put things off? I think that, you know, districts 
in Michigan, unfortunately, are financially struggling, right? right? We know that. We see districts closing left and right. And let me just put out there that the ACLU of Michigan, we know that all children can learn, and we want them to be educated and have a public education. Um, Public education is a fundamental bedrock to our democracy, right? Um, So we need to ensure that our public education system is strong, it's robust, and able to meet all of the needs of the children that it serves. So I say that because districts are finding a way through the advice of their attorneys um, to be able to make it be more challenging for parents to bring these complaints um, and also to lead to a deterrent effect. We know of some attorneys that have brought lawsuits or filed for due process when the parents have filed their complaints So they've filed a written complaint, not needing an attorney, but just written one on their own, filed it with the Michigan Department of Education, in which then the attorney for the district says, no, we want to be in the forum of a due process. And the reasons for that are control. I think that that's correct. Um, MDE um, used to be um, an organization that had a charge, they felt, to only look into um, procedural violations. For 16 years, they were operating under that understanding and not getting to the substantive violations of complaints. And that's just, that's incorrect. And thankfully now it's being corrected and MDE is getting into the substantive as well as procedural issues that are brought before them. But the district wants all substantive issues to go through the due process hearing. And I also know that in regards to um, due process, it it functions within Michigan as an insurance defense. So districts have, as long as they meet their deductible, then the attorneys are paid out of the insurance for the districts. Now, this is my understanding at this time. So it it behooves districts to go through that route so that they're not paying out of pocket for the cost, but their insurance kicks in and then that covers the cost for for the attorney for the school district, which it's very beneficial for the school district's attorney, not beneficial for the family, who would then have to go out and retain an attorney because it is a, a, a legal proceeding, which parents feel. I get calls often from parents that have started the process and then feel very overwhelmed as they're getting motions to dismiss or various things, discovery requests. You know, that's just not their expertise. So that's where it gets to be problematic. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. Right. It gets very expensive for the families to uh, get through the whole court process. It's interesting, though, because I would think that even though insurance covers the fees for the attorneys, that uh, eventually their insurance is going to increase if they're constantly having to pay for their attorneys through their insurance programs. Right. And I, I would speculate on that. I do not know for sure. But, I mean, there's not many due process proceedings that are brought right because of this deterrent effect and the and the cost prohibitive nature of it on behalf of parents and plus it's also an emotional investment that parents are already struggling just to have their child's needs met and then to have to you know I will counsel parents and try to say like this is what it looks like and that's overwhelming and very difficult and even if you win this is something else that we've been up against is that if you win um The law, IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, provides for attorney's fees to be recouped when you are the prevailing party. And I've had districts 
when I have been the prevailing party on behalf of my clients, say, well, we're going to take you into federal court and tie that up for two years. Um, so you see attorneys that have been in private practice that just can't sustain that business model anymore. So I'm thankful for the ACLU that's looking for opportunities to revamp the systems in which children are needing to be educated in and really look for those opportunities that we can change it for more than just one family but make a systemic impact. Right. Right. That's really what's needed, too. And hopefully uh, some of that will be changed, although given current uh, political climate, uh, it's going to be an uphill battle for a lot of that. Yes, that's very true. (laughs) We need to make sure that we we make our public schools as strong as they can possibly be. We really need to focus on funding. um, And it's just that's not where our state is headed. It's it's gone. It's going in a very precarious direction that, um, yeah, is very concerning. Right. Now, one of the key issues the ACLU of Michigan is working on, of course, is that many school districts in Michigan are not providing adequate special education services, which you, of course, alluded to earlier, and it's a violation of federal law. What are some of the problems that are occurring, and what can people do, or what do people need to know about these cases? And I know, for example, you uh, told me before we got started that you had new information about the restraining laws that are uh, we're trying to uh, the lieutenant governor's commission is trying to eliminate, and so maybe this is a good time to talk about that as well. Yes. So thankfully, we have a lieutenant governor that's very committed to these issues, um, and because of Lieutenant Governor Kelly's priorities, there are a, there's a package of bills that are currently slated to pass, and we are they're currently in the education committee. Um, these are. House bill. It starts with five four one zero, so people can go online and they can they can look these house bills up. Um, they have passed the house. They are currently pending within the committee, um, and the ACLU supports all of these bills. And what these bills do, it um, is a bipartisan effort to prohibit un- harmful behavior interventions, including restraint and seclusion. So, and it limits the use of it restraint and inclusions only within extreme emergency situations. So the positive behavioral intervention supports we know reduce the use of restraints and seclusions. So when children and positive behavioral intervention supports, I just want to pause there. I don't know why every school district isn't doing it. I don't know why the Michigan Department of Education has not mandated it yet, but this is what's currently pending, and this is what needs to be advanced. Because when we place expectations upon all of our children, they live into those expectations, right? That's what positive behavioral intervention support to do. And children want to please, often, the adults around them. But if they don't know or if they're dealing with trauma or if they're dealing with a disability that impairs their ability to comply with the rules placed upon them, we should not punish them by putting them into restraints and seclusions, causing them additional harm and trauma. But we should be able to get to what they need, and that's oftentimes through the use of positive behavioral interventions and supports. So this is an, uh, an advancement of utilizing that. And the nice thing about this package of bills, too, is it provides extensive training on PBIS. So it's not just one or two people that will know it and be able to see if there's um, implementation within their district, because we know PBIS has to be implemented with fidelity, and it has to target the needs of the child, right? And if you don't have individuals that are trained on it, 
it's not consistent throughout, and it has to be done that way um, for children to, to understand what the expectations are and what they need to live into. So every quarter, the other thing about this bill is that it will require every quarter for the Michigan Department of Education to list by district required data, such as the use of interventions, the number of suspensions, the number of expulsions, dropout rate, and when emergency restraints are being used. And when they are used, it must be document must be documented. Currently, there's no requirement that if your child is put in restraint and seclusion that you have to be notified as a parent. I find that abhorrent as I a do parent. I too. Yeah, that's My ridiculous. My child is being restrained. I want to know why. I want to know who did it. I want to know how long. And that's just, um, that's got to change, right? There's right. a lot of regulation. It's actually been forbidden in hospital use. There's heavy regulations if it's ever utilized within the jail system. And the one place we don't have oversight of protection is when it's applied to children. Right. So a child died last year. We need to make sure that that never, ever happens again. Right. And these bills will advance that. So we're encouraged people to call their senators, especially Majority Leader Mikoff, in order to advance these bills out of committee and onto the Senate floor for passage. And they may want to double down by contacting their Senate Education Committee members as well. Yeah, well, you know, and I, I don't think uh, the lieutenant governor would mind my saying this because he's been on the podcast with me twice and he's already talked about this. His own daughter was restrained as at five years of age in school. Wow. So, and, wow. and she has autism. And I think, uh, you know, that's how he suddenly realized what a problem this really was and why he got involved. So he has a personal connection there. You know, and it, it's fascinating to me, too, because um, I remember at the rally where we met, uh, they said that uh, there are several school districts in this state, prominent school districts in this state, who are fighting this, and they want to continue to be able to restrain kids. I, I'm, I'm just fascinated by the, uh, the reasoning behind that. Yeah, that, that I mean, it's... it's that's very disturbing because we have solid data out there that shows how effective PBIS systems are when they're implemented. Now, I think it goes back to the financial struggles that districts are under because it takes training. It takes money to train those people. It takes folks that have um, a behavioral interventionist background to be able to do an effective functional behavioral assessment right, and a positive behavioral intervention plan. I can't believe in Michigan that we don't fund this as a priority where children are being suspended and excluded and restrained rather than putting in these systems that the data shows works. Right. I think. Well, I think a lot of people are just plain ignorant about it, too. They just don't realize that it's going on. Yeah. Is part of the problem, and hopefully... Uh, People will find out about this as the ACL keep, ACLU keeps working on this and uh, we get the word out and more people will get involved and we can make this change. We hope so. And thank you for the opportunity to be here on your program so that we can advance that. Because <laughs> sure. it's huge that as we work together that we can make the systemic change happen. Right. Uh, now, there's a definite trend in America with changing our education system from public schools to charter schools and private schools. But one of the issues that isn't being addressed in all these discussions on this uh, situation is that special education funding and implementation what are some of the concerns about special education in private schools and charter schools? Well, let's just be very clear that charter schools are public school academies, mm -hmm. PSAs. 
So they function under the exact same laws that the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the American with Disabilities Act, the Rehabilitation Act of 504, all apply to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that oftentimes there is a direction of parents um, to the public schools when their child has special education needs that have to be accommodated under those laws. And I've heard several parents tell me that, you know, the charter says, your child is welcome to come here, but first we're going to give them um, an assessment and see how they how they rank because we are a baccalaureate institution or we are getting kids ready for college, right? And so they take a test and it shows that they're functioning on the fifth grade level and then they say, well, your child can come in, but we'll place her in the fifth grade and the child is 17. Oh, man. So they're finding ways to say, oh, we'll enroll, but this is how we're going to work. And that's unacceptable. Right. And the reality is, is that public schools are getting the majority of students with special education needs. And the reason for it being, when we have uh, unregulated, uncapped proliferation of charter schools that are majority of which are funded, non, that are for-profit institutions, it's in their business model not to provide education to the most expensive students, and mm. those are special education students. Right. We know that there's extra cost associated, and that's fine. That, I mean, it's fine that there's extra cost associated with it, but it's not fine to discriminate against that. And they're getting away with it, and we need to hold them accountable. We need to make sure that families understand that charter schools are under the exact same r rules as public schools, and they can't just take the easiest to educate and those with the least amount of disabilities um, and kind of cream off the crop. I hate to say that because I think a lot of students with special education needs are some of the most brightest. They just need the education accommodations in order to be able to live into their full potential, and that just costs money. So we need to make sure that we hold charters accountable for the rules that, that are applicable to them and that they can't say, oh, you'll get better services if you go down to the public school because we just can't, we can't provide that here. Well, you have to provide it here if you're, if your child, if you want to enroll your child there. Mm -hmm. So supporting parents to have the voice to be able to do that is something we want to make sure happens as well. Right. Well, you know, and my feeling is that the charter schools are getting the same public tax dollars that the public schools get, so therefore they should have to function and perform the exact same way as the public schools in order to get the taxpayers' money. Absolutely. Or at least the same accountability and regulations should apply. And that brings up another question. Are the same regulations and requirements in place for charter and private schools that are in place uh, with public schools? Are they held to the same accountable standards? So with, okay, with charter schools, they are held. They are to be held, but they are not being held currently by the Michigan Department of Education mm -hmm. as to meeting these requirements. Now, private schools and parochial schools are under a different. Um, they are not receiving federal funding, and that's really the linchpin here in right. regards to making these laws apply. Charter schools are receiving, like you stated, the tax dollars in order to fund an education. Parochial schools currently are not. Now, if we're moving in the direction of vouchers to be able to apply to them, that would be um, arguably some federal dollars going towards them. And if you can find um, that they are receiving some kind of 
Um, and it has to be more than de minimis. It has to be something more, a bit more substantial, um, that they're getting some federal dollars in order to provide education. They cannot discriminate. Right. And they must be applying for, um, especially under 504 and the American with Disabilities Act. Right. Now, how are a lot of these uh, charter schools able to get around this accountability issue? That's a wonderful question, John. Um, the reason that they are is Michigan Department of Education is supposed to be providing oversight, regulations. We are like the Wild West when it comes to charter schools here in Michigan, where there is a proliferation of them and unregulated, right? And so we saw um, that there have been some... Um, some legislation that's been advanced in regards to lifting a charter school cap back in 2011. We have seen where there's been legislation that's been pushed forward to advocate for charter schools, and there hasn't been that accountability, the regulations that are required, in order to make sure that the charters that we have are under a standard of excellence or even some form of accountability. We lack that in the state of Michigan, which is getting us a reputation nationally as being the Wild West in regards to charters. In fact, some quality charter schools don't want to even come to Michigan because of the lack of regulation, the lack of oversight, because good charter schools want to make sure that they're able to perform in a way that, um, you know, establishing a credibility, um, establishing that there's good quality outcomes for the students that they are providing an education to. And when you don't have those kind of benchmarks to be able to compare them to the public schools or to the other charter schools around them, then you have a real issue. So there is a lack. I know that when the Detroit Free Press put out an expose in regards to the charter schools and the lack of regulations, the, the, uh, the lack of accountability and oversight, there were 11 individual or charter authorizers that were going to be investigated by the MDE, but then that got pulled back. So I'm not sure <laughs> why that happened, um, and it's very concerning that it seems like there's powerful and there's money uh, associated with charter schools, especially those for-profit ones, and they are just being able to get away with things in Michigan that they're not in, uh, in other states such as Massachusetts um, and other places where there's good regulations on them. So we need to make sure that we get those here in Michigan. Right. Well, I think, too, one of the, uh, one of the problems that we face with uh, accountability issues. And I think this also is a problem for the public schools, too, is because state education budgets have been cut so much in the past 20 years that a lot of the investigators who used to go out and check into public schools are no longer there. The budgets for those, uh, because I have a friend who uh, used to teach special education, and she retired a few years ago, and she said way back uh, when she was teaching special education, the state would routinely send investigators who would show up unannounced, walk into the classrooms, and observe what was going on. And she said, as far as she knows, that doesn't happen almost ever anymore. Wow. That's very concerning. <laughs> that does, that's something that should be addressed. I know that Pangora, there was, a, there was an organization that was hired to come in and look at our complaint process um, for that kind of oversight and that kind of checks and balances. And there's been some pushback on the state level within the MDE superintendent as to whether or not that Pangora report is one that needs to be followed, where there are enough interest groups that were consulted and talked with. And, and 
I, I think that's very concerning because here's um, an outside third party giving input, and it was pretty much objective, um, and just saying, here's the flaws. Why don't we run with that and fix that rather than put our dig our heels in and try to justify that there's no problems? We need to take back the curtain and be able to see where our district's struggling. And, and you're right, it does get to financial issues and districts being financially strapped, which comes from this proliferation and a lack of regulation on charter schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's very concerning. Unfortunately, and that's uh, where we are now, but I think more people just need to become aware of what's going on and know what's uh, happening. And that leads me to uh, this next question, which is where can people go to find out more about American Civil Liberties Union and the concerns about education as well as other issues that you guys are working on and uh, both uh, nationally, of course, and in state and local areas? So the ACLU of Michigan has a website, and it's ACLU org that you can find out more information. And as I alluded to the Flint case that we're working on, um, if you do forward slash cases, forward slash Flint dash schools, you'll be able to learn more about that specific case because really that is a case that's focused upon Flint given the current crisis there. But we hope that it will have reverberate, <laughs> that it will have a reverberating effect throughout the state as we expose what districts are having to struggle with to meet their special education accommodations, how there's a lack of oversight and state um, state accountability in regards to supporting the local schools too, right? There's something about local control, but there's also about local support as well. So um, we need to make sure that, that uh, traditional public schools are getting the support that they need the funding that they need in order to educate the children and the needs that they have. So you can learn more about it from our website, aclumich.org, um, and find out there how you can how you can help us participate in some of these grassroots efforts that we're trying to advance, but also the litigation, because that is where um, systemic change is able to, to have a major impact is through the litigation and through the legislative endeavors that we're attempting to, to facilitate as well. Yeah, I think it's really important that people need to know that, uh, you know, their their voice actually does matter. And you can call and write letters and they will be taken seriously, or at least we hope they will be taken seriously by the right people. You just have to uh, get involved. And uh, that, unfortunately, sometimes means turning off the TV and getting off the computer and actually making a phone call or two or uh, writing a letter, but uh, letters, in fact, I've been told by many people, are uh, very effective because hardly ever, hardly anyone ever gets one anymore. And those letters can share and communicate people's stories, right? And that's the most compelling. What have families gone through that really illustrates where our system is breaking down in regards to educating children with, with various needs and special education needs? And we need to make sure that those stories are shared because those are what are compelling and can and can activate change. Right. And one of the things that I like about the ACLU Michigan website is you guys have links on there as to who people need to get on the phone with and write letters to for all these issues. Yes, there's ways that people can get active and be able to engage with us. And, um, you know, we're, we're actively motivated right now, given the current climate, that we need to advance 
and and fight for the rights of of all children within the systems that are designed and were established to service them, right? But oftentimes those systems lose focus or don't hold the child in mind when they're creating their rules or regulations. And so we want to make sure that um, that their needs are advanced within these systems. You know, the American Civil Liberties Union does a lot of work in protecting the rights of individuals across the country in many legal areas. And it really is important for parents of special needs kids to connect with the ACLU of their own individual state, like ACLU Michigan. Can you talk about how your work impacts families for special education? I'm so excited for families to be able to get education on the various issues that they're struggling with and that um, just to know that the ACLU of Michigan is very committed to advancing the cause that all children can learn. I have seen a lot of discrimination against children with disabilities, especially children with those invisible disabilities, if you will, the one where they present as normal if you looked at the child, but then they've got a disability that is entitled to accommodation. And we really need to work together to ensure that all children are included because it benefits all children, right? Not this, not just the children with special education needs, but also the children that are neurotypical, if you will. And we as a society need to advance that, and we need to include everyone that's been pushed to the margins because we need them at the forefront um, to, to solve some of the complex issues, to help us become a more uh, a society that cares for others and empathizes and has an emotional intelligence that's hugely important. Um, and I've just seen such benefits when, when schools take on that um, mode of inclusion, such as in the Fry case, you have kind of two different school districts, one that said, no, we don't allow dogs here and all the issues that that would present, and another one that said, yes, of course we include them in here, and they put them in, his, in um, the yearbook. So it's just a mindset that we have to help shape and mold, and our children teach us to do this as they include everyone and in making sure that we don't judge and push aside, but that we really make sure that all children are embraced, all children can learn. They just need to get what they need in order to do so, and we need to make sure that that's a priority for our state to enable them to do that. My thanks again to Kristen Totten of the ACLU of Michigan for taking the time to talk about all the education issues that the ACLU is working on for Michigan families and across the United States. And we have links to the ACLU pages that Kristen talked about on our website at specialparentsconfidential.com. And now a reminder to please help us out by sharing this episode of Special Parents Confidential and any episode you've enjoyed with all your social media links. You can do this easily with the social media buttons that we put on the main page for this episode on the Special Parents Confidential website. Also, be sure to join our email list so you can get all the articles and updates that we publish along with new episodes delivered right to your inbox the moment they're available online. We have some very big news coming up about a couple of guests that will be joining us on episodes in the new year, and you're definitely not going to want to miss that. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.